Wanda's Twist on Say's Law by Brian Michael Wang Jianlin had a decision to make. As chairman of Dalian Wanda, the large Chinese real estate developer, should he declare war on the venerable Disneyland? The opening of Wanda's Nanchang-based two-square-kilometer theme park hardly looked like a declaration of war against Walt Disney's empire. Wang's media interviews tell another story. Stating directly and frankly that they, Disney, shouldn't have entered China, he hopes that the 10 to 15 theme parks he plans to build will keep Disney's new Shanghai park unprofitable until at least 2026. Wang, in an interview on the Chinese television station CCTV in mid-May 2016, noted that the frenzy of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and the era of blindly following them has passed. Wang has steered his traditionally stodgy real estate development company directly into Disney's path. Not content anymore with just building shopping malls and mixed-use complexes, he wanted to start creating the content that the cinemas play in his movie theaters. Wanda's new Qingdao Oriental Movie Metroplex Complex seeks to take over Hollywood as a major source of entertainment content. Recently acquired Legendary Studios co-produced such hits as Jurassic World and The Dark Knight. The company's $8.2 billion film investment plan seeks no less than to make China the world's leading film producer in just five years. More recent investments include the $20 million donation to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Los Angeles-based Film Museum to a $1 billion investment in Paramount Pictures. How did China's richest billionaire plan to move away from building shopping malls and cineplexes to try to dominate Chinese culture? Did Wanda have the core competencies to take on Disney? Did its government influence nurture the company or hinder its long-term growth prospects? And most importantly, does war with Hollywood and Disney help Wanda achieve its prime directive of helping humanity? Most Wanda lore, including the company's own autobiography, trace the company's history through four major epics. In a nutshell, the small state-owned real estate developer expanded beyond its home base in Dalian in the early 1990s to cover China with Wanda plazas and other commercial real estate. At the heart of Wanda's real estate expansion laid the Wanda Plaza. According to the company's own promotional materials, the Wanda Plaza is an innovative concept in commercial property that was pioneered by Wanda. A typical complex might fuse a large shopping mall, an outdoor shopping street, with a five-star hotel, office space, and apartments. The end result is a fully independent commercial zone that combines shopping, dining, leisure, and entertainment. The company sought to innovate China's real estate markets by building its own complete commercial real estate value chain, which spans commercial planning, hotel design and research, commercial property construction, and commercial management subsidiaries. Wanda and its plazas successfully grew in the 1990s and 2000s. Exhibit 2 shows the location of these properties around 2015. As shown in Exhibit 3, the sales of properties accounted for roughly 83% of Wanda Property Company's income and roughly half of its earnings around 2015. The figure also shows that while revenues continue to pick up, growing by 20% annually, squeezing profit margins made such property transactions less attractive for future growth. With gross profits falling from 43% of revenue in 2013 to 40% in 2015, 
Wanda's real estate-focused business line looked directly to decline after 2015. Cinema acquisitions represented an important way Wanda drove traffic to its properties. Wanda Cinemas and its listed Wanda Cinema line represented one of the largest cinema operators, with the company boasting 187 cinemas and 1,657 screens circa 2015. Other sources put the number of screens at over 310 cinemas, with 2,700 screens in operation at the time. In China, at least, Wanda had a clear business logic for combining malls and cinemas. In the words of Jerry Yi, a general manager of Wanda Cinemas, combining cinemas and shopping malls contributed to a consumption atmosphere dedicated to achieving a benign business strategy with shopping malls so as to achieve maximum economic benefits and social impact. Wanda's building and operation of theme parks also played into Wanda's strategy of increasing real estate prices. On the plus side, the World Travel Market Global Trend Report has put theme park revenues growing by about 370% from 2010 to 2020, maxing out at a value of around $12 billion. Much of this demand would result from expanding China's middle class, set to reach about 75% of total demand by the end of the 2010s. Wanda's strategy of concentrating development in second-tier cities also buffers the company from falling real estate prices. Signs of oversupply already exist. Wanda's plans to build 15 new parks, like its new park in Hefei, lead people to question whether demand will justify these numbers. Clearly, the larger mega-projects looked like the natural extension of Wanda's previous business strategy. Still under development in 2016-2017, its $17.5 million investment in China's Hunan province for the Changsha Wanda City Resort combined the usual shopping, tourism, and mall-increasingly sports-related activities. The 20 more city resorts planned across China by 2020 demonstrated Wanda's commitment to large-scale real estate development. As a natural and complementary offshoot of its commercial real estate business, Wanda started moving from renting space for cinema owners in its malls to building and operating its own cinemas. Wanda's first theater opened in Tianjin in 2004. Just two years later, the company had launched its 100th screen in its new Beijing Central Business District Wanda Plaza Theater. In 2008, the number of screens doubled to 200, with Wanda's opening of its Longde Plaza Theater in Beijing. By 2012, the company boasted 1,000 screens, 115 movie theaters, and revenues of close to $320 million. By 2015, the listing of Wanda Cinemas on Shenzhen Stock Exchange as Wanda Cinema Line Corporation announced the company's success in the movie screening cinema business. The movie business had clearly complemented Wanda's real estate business. Even before considering branching out in movie content production, Wanda still had a long way to go before fully exploiting its existing markets. Figure 4 shows healthy growth in Wanda commercial properties revenue at the end of 2015, a trend which seemed unlikely to change with continued growth. Wanda plazas had already started growing into large cultural projects, combining a Wanda mall with outdoor theme parks, hotels, bar streets, and stage shows. The Wuhan Central Cultural District, Changbai Shan International Resort, and the Sichuanbana International Resort represent examples of the evolving nature of Wanda's real estate investments. Toward the beginning of 2017, 
The company had been developing seven more in places like Hefei, Wuxi, Chengdu, and Harbin. The company similarly branched out into department stores, with 51 stores in major urban centers like Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing, Chengdu, and Wuhan. The company also found opportunities in its cinema business by expanding at home and abroad. At home, such expansion came from purchases like the acquisition of Wuzhou Film Distribution. Wuzhou Film Distribution grossed around $130 million for The Taking of Tiger Mountain and about $60 million for Zhong Kui, Snow Girl and the Dark Crystal. Abroad, much of this growth came from Wanda's acquisition of the U.S. theater chain AMC Entertainment and subsequent acquisition of Carmike Cinemas Incorporated through AMC to create the largest movie chain in the United States. The company's acquisition of Europe's Odeon and UCI would similarly create a combined whole with significant market share in Europe. Even in smaller markets, the company has sought out to buy movie chains. The recent acquisition of Nordic Cinema Group, Hoyts, an Australian cinema chain, and the movie website M-Time add more markets to Wanda's portfolio. At first sight, these foreign cinema chain acquisitions seem un-Wanda-esque. Wanda had no plazas or other significant commercial property in and around the foreign cinemas their new purchases owned. Two theories might explain Wanda Chairman Wang Jianli's thinking in making this bold move. First, Wanda might have planned to expand its real estate lines in these foreign markets. New York, London, Sydney, and Paris feature among Fortune's top 10 most expensive real estate rental areas in the world. If Wanda acquired real estate associated with its movie house acquisitions, rising land prices and commercial real estate rents could have paid off as handsomely as in China. Yet, if Wanda does not have such foreign aspirations, why didn't Wanda own or run any cinemas in real estate-crazed Hong Kong? Second, maybe Wang wanted to get out of real estate and become really good at running cinemas. When Wanda acquired AMC, the company indicated that it would also spend an additional $500 million on theater renovations and technology upgrades. We want to be a big company, not just in China, but in the world. This transaction will help make Wanda a truly global cinema owner. Similarly, AMC planned to integrate in its European cinemas some of the changes which succeeded in the U.S., like installing recliner seating and offering more food and drink options at its concession booths. Wanda's newfound skills at modernizing cinemas appears to have driven the company's desire to buy even smaller chains like Carmike Cinemas, the U.S.'s fourth-largest cinema chain, Hoyt's, and Nordic Cinemas Group. In the run-up to his struggle with Disney, Wang had pursued a light and heavy strategy, known more commonly as its asset light strategy in search of balanced growth. Under this strategy, Wanda Commercial, for its part, would raise money from outside investors while still promoting and managing properties, effectively taking them off its books while still reaping revenues from them. Its business information modeling software allowed staff to subcontract part of the building process, further reducing the company's own need for materials and assets. Its cultural business would group a diversified range of acquisitions in technology, travel, and commerce into a narrative around culture. In their new business model, Wanda became a distributor through its commercial properties of cultural content produced by its movie studios and other cultural businesses. By end 2016, 
Exhibit 5 shows the range of Wanda's businesses. Some clearly complemented its real estate interests, some not so much. Was Wang engaging in a derealestatization of his company at a time when profits from the industry continue to boom? Wanda had closed a third of its plazas, or 35, by the end of 2015. These closures came at a time when, as David Hong of the China Real Estate Investment Corporation noted, the China property market is still one of the most profitable markets among all industries in China or even the world. Or even worse, using such a derealestatization to radically transform Wanda. In 2016, Wang announced in a televised interview that he planned to privatize Wanda commercial properties. Privatization would allow Wang to turn Wanda into what one writer at the Nikkei Asian Review termed a complete black box. Wang could then wind down Wanda's real estate businesses to pursue his cultural crusade. Or maybe Wang was simply strengthening his commercial properties business to serve as a milk cow for his cultural acquisitions. Wang's stated property in privatizing Wanda Commercial Properties Company was to offer investors in its securities higher returns than those offered in recent years on Hong Kong's lukewarm equities market. Even more promising, privatization would allow the company to relist on one of the piping hot mainland stock exchanges. The company had a fair amount of lockup value, as noted by share prices at roughly six times earnings in 2016. Analysts said that the company could expect investors to pay 20 times earnings, or more than three times as much as Hong Kong equity market demand had generated. The 60 theme parks Wang had under construction in China in 2016 led credence to the theory of privatization as cash generator. Wang's success in the cinema business meant that he had the resources to pursue diversifying up the value chain, from film content distribution to production. By 2016, Wanda Media had already grown into China's largest private film production company and second after accounting for state-owned competitors, with a 3% share of its market. According to the company's own website, the company raked in more revenue than its China competitors with one of its roughly 10 films per year, Mojin the Lost Legend ranking second place in terms of revenue earned. In global terms, Wanda ranked as the fifth largest, making the movies that inspired 5% of the spending in that market. Expanding Wang's content generation strategy meant focusing on investing in Hollywood at the same time as investing in a Chinese-based rival. Wanda's Hollywood investments included the acquisition of Legendary Entertainment, a company that produced blockbuster-style movies like Pacific Rim, Man of Steel, and Jurassic World, earning around $3.5 billion. Other deals included the $1 billion purchase of Dick Clark Productions, a partnership with Sony Pictures, giving Wang creative control over upcoming films, and an abortive attempt to buy 49% of Paramount Pictures. Exhibit 6 shows Wanda's acquisitions in the run-up to Wang's feud with Disney. Wanda's investments in creating a viable rival to Hollywood had taken off. In 2013, Wanda began construction of a gargantuan $8.2 billion Oriental Movie Metropolis studio complex in Qingdao and a $4.9 billion attached studio theme park. Following its previous model of park development, Wang planned for the complex to house a celebrity wax museum, a film museum, an IMAX research lab to put on its own international film festival, and of course, have movie theaters. 
Demand emerged for the complex even before Wanda finished building it, with Wanda executives signing agreements with film studios and talent agencies to have about 30 foreign movies and 100 local films produced at the new Qingdao facility every year. At first glance, Wang's strategy appeared to be paying off. Legendary produced The Great Wall starring Matt Damon, grossed $160 million in the Middle Kingdom alone out of a $200 million worldwide. These revenues turned out to be enough to support the complex's production of other English-language films. Wang expected not to wait long to monetize his cultural acquisitions through an initial public offering, as he noted in an interview that it's easier for cultural industries to be publicly listed. A stock market slump caused Wang to delay his attempt to list Legendary Entertainment and its parent Wanda Media through acquisition by the already listed Wanda Cinema line. By the end of 2016, Wang's empire looked poised to take on a multinational behemoth like Disney. Wanda had already become a Fortune Global 500 company with over 13,000 employees. Services revenue from tourism, entertainment, and sports accounted for roughly 40% of Wanda's total. Wang wanted to increase that share to 66%. Wang couldn't do it if he ceded markets to the likes of Disney. To what extent has Wang relied on government largesse rather than his own personal business genius? As he noted in late 2015, Wanda's transformation is consistent with China's economic strategy. When the government encouraged private enterprise and entrepreneurism, Wang answered. After leaving the People's Liberation Army, he learned the value of having well-connected friends. A former army friend helped arrange for him to get that first instrumental loan he secured for Wanda in 1988. Earlier, he joined the Shigang Development Company and saw the wisdom of investing in the government's priority sectors involved in China's transition to a consumer-led economy. What could be more consumer-led than shopping malls, movies, and amusement parks? When the state council encouraged companies to go global, the name of its policy initiative from the late 2000s, it could be said that Wanda answered that call, as Wang noted in a speech. If Wang found cooperating with government policy profitable, then government officials found cooperating with Wanda potentially profitable as well. Wang's rising public profile and wealth took off around 2007, when investors close to government's top officials began investing. Wang offered Xi Jinping's older sister, Xi Chao Chao, a stake in the company. She sold those shares in October 2013 to an associate. A business partner of the former Prime Minister's Wen Jiabao's daughter also procured shares early on, as did relatives of the two Politburo members Jia Qinglin and Wang Zhao Guo, and Xi's brother-in-law Deng Jiagui. Exhibit 7 shows the links between party officials and Wanda shares. Connections with Jia and Wang in particular have attracted attention. In 2010, the investment firm owned by Mr. Jia's son-in-law acquired a $9 million stake in Wanda's cinema subsidiary, whose value stood at $131 million around 2015. Mr. Wen's son, Winston Wen, for his part, invested in Wanda through an investment fund for a stake valued at the end of 2016 at roughly $526 million. Wang Zhao Guo's son, Wang Xin Yu, transferred a stake in Wanda to his niece, Yang Xin, according to Wang Zhao An, who himself is a cousin serving as the party chief in the family's home village in Hebei province. Such connections seem to have paid off for Wang personally. In March 2008, 
Wanda Chairman Mr. Wang joined the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress Standing Committee, led by Jia. Five influential groups associated with Zheng Zhao Guo have bestowed five awards on Wanda's chairman. His business ties have undoubtedly resulted in government officials ceding land at favorable rates, subsidizing Wanda's and his own personal profits. Government policies have directly benefited Wanda, which New York Times reporter Michael Forsyth has characterized as a murky intersection of business and power at the heights of the Chinese economy. When Wanda bought AMC in 2012, a group of state banks, including the government's State Export-Import Bank, provided highly unusual and atypical finance for the $2.6 billion deal. Only 34 non-Chinese firms are allowed to play in China annually, and those must suit Chinese censors. But the import limits do not apply to foreign films made in Dalian Studio, which the Chinese government classifies as co-productions. According to Wanda's recent IPO documentation, they claim that land prices offered to them fell by about 40% from 2011 to 2014, despite property prices setting soaring records in China. Wanda plans to subsidize film producers by $150 million annually, or up to $18 million per movie made at the studio, for movies with a trifecta of Chinese cultural elements, Chinese actors, and Chinese investors. Yet, government provides most of the money for these subsidies. On the one hand, Wanda represents just another company benefiting from adhering to the China development model. Western authors Henry Sanderson and Michael Forsyth, in their book China's Superbank, Debt, Oil and Influence, How China Development Bank is Rewriting the Rules of Finance, popularized the model in the course of explaining the success of China's development bank. Yet the model applies to all companies participating in China's real estate construction, sale, or finance. In that model, local governments sell rights to develop land they own. Construction companies, like Wanda, build residential and commercial real estate. Either they, or often local governments, build out the surrounding infrastructure that raise real estate prices and thus taxes. The more companies like Wanda can develop, the faster local economies and tax revenue grow increasing local government and party bosses' promotion prospects. Wang clearly knew about and followed the China Development Bank strategy. The city of Dalian provides a compelling example. In 2015, Wang approached the Dalian city authorities with the proposal to turn the run-down, though historic, Dongguang Avenue into an integrated shopping and business center. The local government turned to the China Development Bank for funding. Wanda's First Wanda City in Hefei's Binhu New District provides just one example of Wang's implementation of the China development model. Most analysts expected the tourist-focused theme park and the accompanying new subway line to lead to the doubling of neighborhood flat prices, producing far more revenue than Wanda had to lay out for the new construction in the area. The other eight similar projects developed in other mainland cities showed the success of the model. Wanda clearly appeared to be responding to the government's policy of promoting Chinese culture. Wang's mantra encouraged Wanda to stay close to the government and distant from politics. And the Central Committee's new policies encouraged local governments to prioritize the sale of land use rights to companies that build projects that promote Chinese culture. These policies similarly incentivized state-owned banks to lend generously for culture-related projects in China and those going out. Expanding China's cultural influence and cultural soft power around the world 
is a goal of the party, noted New York Times journalist and Wang watcher Michael Forsyth. It's pretty clear that is what he is doing. Wang has publicly declared himself the instrument of China's push for more soft power, as Wanda can lead the world when it comes to soft power, and took up promoting the China cultural brand as his historical responsibility. Yet his recent high-profile statements condemning U.S. protectionism and other U.S. policies seem to stray from historically responsible remit to develop Chinese soft power abroad. Indeed, Wang's spread soft power mandate has seemingly given him the drive to invest in a wide range of activities which draw on core competencies outside Wanda's traditional bollywick. He and Wanda are helping China spread its soft power abroad, through everything from stakes in foreign companies to constructions projects along the Thames in London and in downtown Chicago. Some of these purchases include World Triathlon Corporation, which organizes races, Infront Sports Media, which holds Asian broadcast rights to the World Cups, and part ownership in the Spanish football team Atletico Madrid. Maybe these purchases represent Wang's attempt to diversify Wanda. Or are these political cultural investments targeted at bolstering Wang's own reputation in the Communist Party? The $3 billion Wang invested in Qindao amenities like international hospitals, international schools, yacht clubs, hotels, shopping, in order to encourage American directors and movie stars to work there, smacks more of an attempt to strengthen China's soft power than diversify the real estate conglomerate. Wang headed into a building arms race with Disney, with a company trying to reduce its property-related revenues from 66% in early 2015 to around 35% in 2020. Wang's verbal attacks of Disney came to a head about a month before Disney's grand opening of its Shanghai-based amusement park in May 2016. Wang made speeches to the press noting that Disney misread the Chinese market and shouldn't have stepped on his home turf. In that same month, he argued that his Pack of Wolves, the 15 to 20 parks he planned to open to compete with Disney, would drive Disney's One Tiger into making losses. By September, Wang had told the news channel CNN that Disney represented his arch-rival, despite Wanda's partnership with the California-based multinational. So of course we want to smash them. Why? Disney's actual lackluster results suggested that Wang had little to worry about. Disney's target market is 330 million people living in the Yangtze River Delta region. Nomura and other experts had estimated attendance at the Disney park of around 15 million visitors per year. Yet Disney watchers argue that Shanghai Disney has averaged around 20,000 visitors a day since its grand opening, or 7.3 million a year. Shanghai's Disney Resort lagged way behind similar Disney parks in California and Tokyo, which drew in 18 million and 17 million visitors respectively in 2015. China is a complicated market. Disney focused on visitor numbers. Wang's resistance to Disney may stem from the U.S. company's unintentional sabotage of Wang's vision to get rich by applying the China development model. Park visitors didn't care about the local economy. Forget about the financial center and free trade zone. People, after getting rich, hope to have some enjoyable experiences at fun-filled venues, said Chen Langying, a retired worker who visited the theme park in early June during its trial operations, which began on May 7th. 
It was a wonderful experience, and I'll spend money and time in the future to visit it again. Yet Wanda's long-term profits depended on the financial center and free trade zone. People had to make money as well as spend money in the area. Maybe Wang's conflict with Disney's Robert Eager reflects the broader conflict between how to develop China's economy. Disney's contribution to Chinese consumption patterns translated into only 0.8%, namely less than 1% of Shanghai's GDP. Disney's implanted park opened at a time when China's GDP growth slowed to its lowest level in 25 years, to a still hearty 6.9%. A family of three would need to spend the equivalent of the country's average urban wage for a whole month to buy a two-day weekend ticket, or $210. The cleaners at the Shanghai attraction would need to spend one-third of the $605 per month salary to go there. The same cleaner in Hong Kong's Cousin Park could easily afford the cost of admission, with a monthly salary of $1,830. Wang's attempt to build at scales far larger than Disney, and even to remove Disney as a competitor, harks back to a very old debate in economics. Will demand always exist for new products and services? Do Disney and Wanda contribute equally to the demand for cultural services? Does supply generate its own demand? The idea comes from the 18th century economist and philosopher Jean-Baptiste Say. In his 1803 treatise on political economy, he notes that a product is no sooner created than it, from that instant, affords a market for other products to the full extent of its own value. Going on, he notes that as each of us can only purchase the productions of others with his own productions, as the value we buy is equal to the value we can produce, the more men can produce, the more they will purchase. Or just as famously, General Motors CEO Charles Irwin Wilson, because for years I thought that what was good for our country was good for General Motors, and vice versa, in front of the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee in 1953. Henry Ford, the 19th century automotive industrialist, summed up the problem in his 1926 book, Today and Tomorrow, thus, The owner, the employees, and the buying public are all one and the same, and unless an industry can so manage itself as to keep wages high and prices low, it destroys itself, for otherwise it limits the number of its customers. One's own employees ought to have been one's own best customers. It is this thought of enlarging buying power by paying high wages and selling at low prices that is behind the prosperity of this country. Many have criticized Disney's short-termist business model, which seems antithetical to the China development model. Disney suppliers in Dongguan work 66 hours per week for roughly between $1.30 and $1.50 an hour, often while exposed to dangerous chemicals. After a Disney supplier in Shenzhen closed shop and relocated to the lower-wage Philippines, the supplier allegedly reneged on roughly $1.4 million of its social commitments to its workers. Disney claimed the dispute involved the workers and supplier company having nothing to do with Disney. Clearly, refusing to pay salaries and pensions, as well as moving to the Philippines, did not contribute to the local economy, a la the China development model. Authors Bill Capodali and Lynn Jackson had summarized the Disney way as the self-centered exhortation to dream, believe, dare, do. Wang has a decision to make. Follow the Wanda way or the Disney way. Develop the local economy 
or mine it for international expansion, evolve slowly into Disney's business model, or follow the China development model, which has proven successful so far. Should Wang concentrate resources on his fight with Disney, or focus on spreading culture abroad?